pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. 水煮肉片. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Well, hi everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David Martins and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And my guest today went to culinary school in Mexico City when she was 18. And when she came back to L.A., she decided she couldn't stand the kitchen staff's poorly designed, cheaply made aprons. So when her head chef announced he was ordering a new batch of aprons, she jumped in and said, I can help you. In 2012, Hadley and Bennett was founded to bring the best-looking aprons and kitchen gear to the world. Most recently, she released a book called Dream First, Details Later, How to Quit Overthinking and Make It Happen. Zoe Deschanel described my guest as the platonic form of a go-getter who inspires go-getter after go-getter to become go-getter. Although born in America, according to my guest, she's a proud Mexican. Ellen Marie Bennett, aka EB, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And I love that you are Portuguese. There you go. Thank I'm you. half Mexican, too, for the record. <laughs> I was getting there, but I know you you say very proudly, right? That yes, you're I'm Mexican. very proud of being Mexican. This is true. So two important questions. Uh, have yes. you ever been to Portugal? I haven't, and I'm literally dying to go. I Everything about it feels spectacular. It I is really, spectacular. Now I'm glad that I have somebody that I can call and badger about all the details before I go. Please, do, do you know any Portuguese words? No, I don't. I, know it's, I, know I like, early, thought about it for a second, and I realized I definitely don't. I know it's early, but what would what would be the word you know you want to learn? Do you know how to say apron? Since it's you know. No, I do you don't. Learn? Let's do this. Yes, do it. Avental. Avental. I mean, you don't have to sound so sad when you say it, when it's avental. <laughs> Avental, exactly. Avental. <laughs> Just okay. make it sound excited and you sound excited. Before we start the interview, how's Oliver? Oliver, our pet pig, is currently snoring on the deck outside, which is like what he does 21 hours a day. So I, I see him sleeping more than doing things okay. throughout the entire day. He's so funny. When was the time, like, you, went, you used to go to, you know, friend's house and people had cats and people had dogs and maybe had a little bunny and you're like you know what what i really really want is a pig when did that happen yeah. <laughs> you know i just i think i really like going against the grain in many departments and i always wanted a little pig when i was younger and i was really campaigning for it for a long time like i just like with anything, I put it out into the world all the damn time. And I'd just be like, I want a pig. One day I'm going to have a pig. One day I'm going to do this. We're going to have chickens. And one of my, uh, somebody that I knew, she uh, got me a pig as a present. And that, that was it. <laughs> and then and for the record, it's not a little pig. <laughs> no, not a little pig. I got him when he was 15 pounds and he's about 200 pounds now. It's been close to six years. So quite the evolution. And honestly, the bigger he got, the more we loved him because more <laughs> time more went love. by. There was a lot to love and more time had gone by. So if we had known from day one, like, hey, this is going to be 200 pounds. I don't know if we would have really known what to do with that. But now we love the boar and he like lives at our house. So what, what are we going to kick him out? We like love him. He can He's do like that our to Oliver. Child. Oliver. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> can you cook without an apron? Um, I can. 
I kind of like the ritual of it. Like you put it on over your head and you tie the straps and it just kind of means commencing, right? You're a professional chef. Mm-hmm. You get the you get the vibe. And if you're in the kitchen, a professional kitchen, you're not wearing it and you feel kind of naked. So I think I feel less naked at home, but I still definitely feel the kind of need, especially when I'm doing something fancier or longer format. I'm like, I'm going to need an apron for this. When I moved to the embassy, I was a very young person. Uh, I was 23, uh, 10 years ago. And I used to cook just on my normal clothes for some reason. And I was like, oh, whatever. And then I realized in six months, I didn't have any clothes because everything had stains on. And I was like, (laughs) maybe an apron will solve this. Yeah, I'm better than this. So born and raised in LA to a Mexican mother and a British father, you went back and forth to Mexico a lot. Growing up, do you remember your favorite things to eat at home? And who was the best cook, your mom or your dad? You know, definitely my dad. My mom didn't really know how to cook. And ironically, she just recently started cooking a lot. And I'm like, where have you been all of our lives? (laughs) I'm like, okay, now you cook? Uh, she's like, you know, I didn't like it when we were young, when you guys were younger, but now I, I really, she comes over to my house, like before I even am home and I get home and the lights are on and she's like making chicken soup. So uh, it's the whole thing now. So when we were younger, my dad definitely was the cook in the house before they got divorced. Uh, and then when I went to visit him, obviously he continued to cook, but I grew up eating things like shepherd's pie at home because my dad's English or his family's English and Swedish. So I'd have shepherd's pie, which is awesome because it's very similar to picadillo, which is like a Mexican dish version of it. And I feel like they also have it in Portugal. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm guessing, but I'm assuming. No, we'll add that to the list of things to not to know that doesn't happen <laughs> in Portugal. But yeah, I like loved food and realized how much I was like emotionally drawn to it since I was little. Cause they'd always hang out in the kitchens with the old ladies and the grandmas, yeah. even though friends were like running around, I'd be in the kitchen being like, what are you making? Can I taste it? My mom, she never had any interest about my uh, culinary world. Let's put it like that. Mm. When I told her I was going to be a chef, she's like, okay, great. Uh, and very happy for me, but she never like, Oh, please cook for me. And it's the same thing as you said, your mom, my mom, she was always a horrible cook. She's a hopeless cook, but she had to, uh, cook to uh, you know feed us basically but yeah. nowadays sometimes for her i remember like a couple of years ago i think she's getting more interest about food so the other day she was like oh i did a glazed chicken with soy sauce i was like ooh, for her soy sauce it's like <laughs> some next it's, level shit it's i mean five levels i mean glazed I mean, and the word glazed this, exactly this woman was salt and pepper that's it but so it's interesting <laughs> to see how they get older and now they start ha- adding these little things in their yeah. in their routine yeah, she put turmeric in a dish the other day, and I was like, like what? what? <laughs> yeah, she's like, oh, I like how it gives it flavoring color. And I was like, oh, my God, who are, <laughs> who are you? you? Exactly. Yeah. What were some of the differences you experienced going between cultures? Mm, I would say that, like, feeling, first and foremost, the, the English, British, sort of Swedish culture that we had at home with my grandfather and my grandmother was so like proper and you know it was like every day they went for a walk with their big dogs they had great danes there was tea at 4 you know it was just like structure and i actually really loved it like it was a beautiful thing we'd watch amadeus and we were only allowed to to go into the fancy living room like in the evening with supervision and then on the flip side 
we had when I would go to Mexico and my mom who only spoke to me in Spanish and my abuelitas where they would, you know, we're like running around barefoot, rolling in the mud. Nobody, it was totally fine. You know, kids were being just kids and playing soccer and eating tortillas on the street corners and having talk. It just, it was so like unleashed in a really lively way. And I loved both worlds because I didn't get one. I got was that important for you even when you start having an idea of a business like having the structure and having the wild parts <laughs> yeah well actually the inspiration for Headley and Bennett is really like a nod to my two cultures because on one end it's you know kind of a timeless looking the brand visuals are like more timeless versus like trendy that's cool today sort of a thing and, and on the flip side, it's like colorful and alive and, and very just like whimsical. And so that's like a combination of the Mexican English culture. And I love a yin and yang. Yeah. My husband and I are very yin and yang. Like he's the calm to my storm. Right. And so I, I like the balance of the two because I've kind of come to recognize that, you know, you could have crazy all day and colorful all day and all that all day. But like, if you don't have process to back that up, it's a little bit like a one-legged flamingo. And so you need you need both legs. You need the art and you need the science. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't have one exclusively. Or if yeah. you do, it's a little nutty. Who taught you how to sew? And where, and where does this passion come from? I don't actually know how to sew. I, oh, who, who taught you how to sort of sew? Sort of sew. David. Let's skip this one. Let's skip this one. No, so this is, this is important. When I started Headley and Bennett, which is an apron and kitchen gear brand, I did not know how to sew. And in fact, I knew nothing about it, but it was my, call it naiveness to the whole thing that helped me just be like, I can figure it out. We'll make this work. Like, it's fine. I know what I want and I know what other people want and they're telling me what they want and need in a garment. So let's just find somebody who can be like my hands to that. So it ended up working out for the best because I was able to find sewers and people that could do the work for me, but the design, like I never outsourced that. That was all in my own head and working with chefs. And because I wasn't doing the sewing, I had time to think about that stuff versus being at the machine, like, you know, getting yeah. it done. Instead, I was marketing sales, finance, ops, mm -hmm. everything else other than the actual like labor production. What was about the kitchen attire that you were like, eh, you didn't like it? I mean, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. Back in the day before I started Headley Men, it's like you got the, you know, two cent linen apron from the linen service and it was paper thin and the straps were just literally like a string and the straps around the waist were shoelaces and you just like it was like you were wrapping yourself up in, in like a sheet and there was nothing thoughtful about it. And, you know, we're all in this two Michelin star restaurant busting our asses to make the best food out there. And you kind of like don't look the part. You don't feel the part and you mm -hmm. don't um, you don't show up with the same gusto that you do. Like if you're going to run a marathon, you're going to you want a great outfit from Nike that makes you look legit and proper and feel good right yeah. and so it's just that same attitude of like chefs are athletes like they should have gear to match their athletic like needs where you're going into battle every night and you have no idea what's going to happen or how many tickets are going to hit the counter and you have to get to the other side 
how do you think the quality of the gear and equipment that is used in the kitchen affects the work in that kitchen? Do you believe a higher quality of attire leads to a higher quality and more efficient kitchen? I think that it's all in the individual's perspective, right? But I believe truly in my heart of hearts that back in the day when we were making this and handing these aprons out to chefs or working with line cooks, they would put it on and like, I would, I saw the way that they like lifted their head up higher and they felt official. Whereas in the other way, it was a little bit like they were just a cog in the wheel. And to give somebody that like sense of dignity and pride when you are like a $10 an hour line cook, I think is extraordinarily powerful. And I also think that front of house teams and back of house teams alike when you make them feel like they're part of something together, mm -hmm. unified, like there's something really nice to it. It's like, you're putting on your gear that says I'm a part of team, whatever. And I, like, I do think that it changes the energy. It changes the vibe. And a lot of people have said to me throughout the years that, uh, and really to my team too, like when you go to a, a restaurant and they're wearing Headley and Bennett, it's like a sign of a, it's like a sign of a good kitchen. Cause you know, that they're thinking about the details like Rose's luxury, for example, in mm -hmm. DC, Aaron Silverman is wearing Headley and Bennett, like since year one. And like, he, it's an amazing restaurant, but you also know that Aaron's going to buy the best tomatoes. He's going to go to the farmer's market. Like he's going that extra mile for his team and for his, you know, guests that it makes it just another layer to the mix so i mentioned in the introduction that this happened when you were a line cook that your head chefs yeah. said we're they're going to order a new batch of aprons and you were like oh i got you i have some which at yeah. the time wasn't exactly true right you said you didn't have the business but you just right. it was like, whatever if it wasn't can you explain a tiny bit that story and if it wasn't yeah. has been for that small lie where do you think your life would be right now That's a good question. I just uh, I only ask I, one good question. Now I got two things. <laughs> then the rest are just garbage. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, I think that I I would be in food in some capacity, but probably deeper in food than I like. Right now, I'm food parallel or adjacent, but I'm not cooking every day. I always knew that I wanted to be in food, but I didn't know where it was gonna land. So ironically, where I landed is actually somewhere that I love because. It's not cooking all the time, but it's being in that world. Uh, but I, it, to me, it didn't feel like a lie. I'm going to be honest. Like it felt like a advanced truth. If that yeah. makes, it was like, oh no, I'm going to do this. I'm not lying to you. I'm just telling you something that just hasn't happened yet. But I know in my heart of hearts that I can get this done and I'm going to figure it out because I have done enough crazy yeses in in my world to be able to say yes to this and know that I'm going to land it and I'm going to use my own creative pro problem solving to find the solution and know that I'm going to do this and that takes like doing a lot of little scary things in life to then when that one big opportunity comes you're like I can do it and you yeah. just like leap and know you're going to land somewhere and I was I did not consider failure like Nothing in that moment gave me the feeling that there was going to be failure attached to it. And, and there was a lot of it. Actually, the book is very heavy on, on failure and things that, you know, you learn along the way and tennis balls and shit storms that happen 
frequently. Um, but I was like determined and I just had like complete conviction and faith that I was going to land that fall. Did you have any like already designs made uh, ready or as soon as he said that you ran home and be like, I have to do this right now? The latter. It was yeah. like, okay. And I, I was very honest with, with, uh, with him in the process where I was like, okay, I'm going to bring you fabric and you're going to tell me which one you like. Here's the fabric. What do you like? What do you love? What do you want? What do you don't want? How can we make it what you are like looking for? And just really kind of getting to the nut of the matter was just with lots of collaboration and like listening, really listening to him, not just saying I'm going to listen. And then like, not that really contributed to the first several years of Headley and honestly, were like individual collaborations with chefs where they would say, I want a purple unicorn on our apron. And I'd be like, okay, let's figure out how to do that. Like, why do you want a purple unicorn? What is it about that unicorn? And just like, coming up that's me being extreme but it was everything from pocket placement to the straps to where the neck falls and and they really are just this kind of timeless piece now i mean you see so many copycats out there in the world which is like a strap that mm -hmm. is a different color and then it feels like headley invented but it is not an official headley invented apron because you don't see the little red ampersand on the chest which is our logo Uh, which was inspired by the Lacoste alligator. I feel like you'd appreciate that. Uh, so yeah, it kind of developed over time, which is also very much my theory of like dream first details later. You're not going to know everything at the beginning and that's okay. Like you can't overthink every single little tiny thing or you're never going to start something. That's true. So your book, Dream First Details Later, just came out a few weeks ago. Why was it so important for you to put this out there? I wanted to give people the kind of the way that the way but also it's more like the attitude right mm -hmm. the whole book is about just showing up and trying and recognizing there's going to be a lot of failures along the way and you need to embrace those along with the successes that you'll experience because there's going to be highs and there's going to be lows but when you assume that there's only highs from here you're just automatically setting yourself up for mental failure because you're just like I, if this happens to me, I suck. And that's not the case. And so I wanted to write a business book that was honest and real and taught people how to get out of their own way in their heads and just start showing up and trying and recognizing that you yourself are going to learn so much by being in a, the situation that you'll learn more than from any book, right? So if I can get you to just get yourself to that moment where you are beginning something, you're going to learn what you need to learn to then get to the next step. And when you fail, you're like, okay, what, what did I learn? What did I fail at? Why did I fail? Cool. Let me try that again and see if I can do it a little differently. And that like repetition will eventually cause forward progress. And yeah. That is what the whole damn book is about. That my journey of from $300 to a multi-million dollar company that I started out of my house uh, when I was 24. And it's just like, okay, you can do it too. You say in the book, actually, if you are procrastinating on a goal, career change or business idea, this book can help you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, how, just a little bit. How so? I mean, you already said yeah. a little bit, but. Yeah. Well, I think first off, it's just like making it simple. It's breaking it down and recognizing that it takes The first step, which is like a decision, a decision that you can do something and deciding that you are going to do something and then carving out time and showing up. And it's that first baby step. 
in, in getting people to like recognize that that first baby step is actually like not that psychotic and crazy. And then the other steps follow. So that that's like one piece of it. The whole book, by the time you're done reading, it's like, okay, I'm going to try, you know, it like gets you to the place where you're like, all right, I'm willing, fine, I'll try. And <laughs> other parts of it just break down everything from how to land a collaboration with like another brand, how to sell without selling, right? How to talk to somebody in a way that I call it humble enthusiasm, right? And there's a whole chapter on it where I really dig into how you want to be excited about what you're selling, but you're also excited to learn. And that perfect like contrast makes it really easy to talk to someone because they are collaborating with you and they are willing to talk to you about whatever it is you're talking about because you're excited about it, Mm -hmm. but then you want to hear from them. Therefore they're now buying into your idea and it goes from there. And so I, I get into like how to take feedback, how to get feedback, what to do when you fail. Like, how do you pick yourself back up? What are the things you need to ask when the rubber meets the road and like things aren't going well, you know, how to get off the bike to fix the bike, like meaning details later. I didn't say details never. Right. So there's a point in my journey where I've been just like willing everything into existence just by showing up and like trying really hard. And I get to a point where I just can't do that anymore. And I realize with my team that I need to take care of my team. I need to take care of myself differently. I need to show up differently. I need to put processes into place, but it's a real come to Jesus in the book. And, uh, that's very honest and open and and I don't like sugarcoat it. It's the way that it is. So being very vulnerable about that, I think will help other people realize that the journey is not as it's going to be scary and shit's going to happen, but it's stuff that like you can definitely get through. What happened to you when you stopped being afraid of the word? No, (laughs) I, it became less emotional and more about, all right, this is an opportunity to like, instead of going straight right now, I'm going to pivot left or pivot right, but I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to like course correct the path. And that it just really helped because no is the thing that so many people are afraid of. That's what they don't want to hear. They're like terrified of it. And so when I realized that no, isn't really no, no is just a path redirection. I was like, Oh, okay, cool. So then I just need to ask myself a different question. Like, which way do I go now? And then that, that helped me keep going into action versus like getting free frozen and paralyzed because someone said, no. Do you feel our um, generation, maybe the generation is coming. It's more accepting of here that, that word you think was more difficult for other generations or no? I don't know because I guess I wasn't part of other generations, but I do believe that people are definitely entrepreneurial. I mean, I think everybody is entrepreneurial. It's just like, it's either buried deep down inside of you, or it's maybe a little bit more on the surface. And the more willing you are to hear no and try stuff, it's like the more entrepreneurial that you are at the present moment. And I love that now more than ever, you are seeing books like my own Um, I mean it was published by Penguin Random House like that's not a small business book publisher and they were really excited about this so I think more women are getting opportunities and you know just 
all kinds of everybody, like everybody is showing up to the table in a way that it's not just like the white guy that's getting the opportunity anymore. So that is, that's it, that is inspiring in its own right for people. So shifting the conversation slightly, imagine yeah. you can go to a, a desert island. Do you have an island that you really like? Um, let's see. I... What is an island that I don't even I don't, know? I don't know what you like. I'm like, don't ask me the island you like. Um, okay, I just imagine islands. To... Okay, all right. Okay, I'm, thinking, whatever. I, I'm thinking of like, I, I was thinking of the Amalfi Coast, but I'm like, that's not an island. It's like attached, whatever. Okay, okay go okay. ahead. Yes, yeah. tell me the question. So <laughs> the island is just for you, your loved ones. You can take Oliver with you as well. Okay, okay. You can take Sounds one good. protein, one veggie, one fruit, and one dessert. What do you take? Oof. And is it a tropical island? Can it be a tropical island? It can be a tropical island, yeah. Okay, so when you're packing cool. your clothes, instead of packing clothes, you have to pack this. So which protein do you take to that island? I would take a cow. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't say it had to be one piece. No, no. I, I, that's true. You take a cow. Okay. What's the veggie? Uh, I would take... Hmm. Well, technically, if I'm on a tropical island, I feel like it's got a ton of vegetation. So I'd bring something that I love, which is kale or tomatoes. One of the two. I, okay. And tomatoes technically a veggie. So. Or actually, no, it's technically a fruit. Okay, fine. Kale. Kale. I would yeah. take kale. How about fruit? Fruit? I don't think they would have apples there. And just apples are never know. a staple. So I would probably bring apples. Because they would have things like papaya and star fruit and jicama and stuff like that, since it's a tropical island. Yeah, we're completely away from the Amalfi Coast right now, but okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're not even close to the Amalfi Coast. And the desserts? And I, they usually have like wild chickens, so chickens are already there. And we're mm -hmm. close to the ocean, so I feel like, yeah, beef is the right path to take. And then what was the last one? Uh, desserts. Dessert? Mm, like a pre-made -made dessert? I would bring pie. Peach pie. Peach pie? Okay. What was your first memory of taste? My first memory of taste. Ooh, that is second good question of the day. Yay. I, <laughs> uh, I do remember being in Tampico, which is where my abuelita lived. And there were these tacos mm -hmm. on a street corner that were really quite small. Like the tortilla was about... I'm putting my two index fingers together with my thumb, <laughs> showing him the picture of a tortilla. And they would dip it in the like oily fat from the, from the beef that was just being chopped up. And the meat was chopped up so finely. It was like almost like crumbled. Like it was so tiny. I vivid, like I'm telling you, and my mouth is watering. And I was like six. Mm -hmm. And I just remember eating like eight of them. They were so good and then you squeeze a bunch of key lime on top not lime key lime and it had fresh cilantro and onion and a little bit of salsa because i was like young so i couldn't handle all the heat just yet and i to this day have been obsessed with those tacos but i remember them i was so tiny when i was first eating those those okay. are the ones most underrated ingredient for you I think that the everyday person underappreciates shallots tremendously. Shallots? I, mm -hmm. I think shallots are incredible. They're so 
simple and like refined and they bring this beautiful flavor and they're like a garlic and a, you know, an onion together, but, but more mellow, but yet they still show up with a punch. I love a shallot. I think they're phenomenal. The most overrated ingredient for you. Mm -hmm. Overrated. Oof, this one's going to be, I'm going to cause some, some, just disagreement on this one. Uh, I don't love uni. I feel like it's, there's many beautiful things, but like, I think abalone is incredible. If I would have, were to have abalone or uni, I would go for abalone all day long. And of all the crazy things in the sea, like, yes, it's beautiful and it's gorgeous and all that stuff. But like, I don't, I, I, it's personally not my favorite. The best breakfast you can have. An English breakfast, like the works, beans, the tomato, the eggs the like whole situation where it's like nine things on a plate love that it's it's one of my favorite meals ever what is the strangest combination food wise when you see people putting two or three ingredients together that you just cannot accept (laughs) uh i'm gonna say probably when people put like weird things on sandwiches or burgers what's weird that things feel, that feel like inappropriate where you're just like that's like so what strange. there's a guy i follow on instagram called like <laughs> okay. liam's lunchbox uh-huh. and i feel like i saw him the other day like dipping a burger into like jelly or something like something weird as you do on a friday night yeah yeah yeah. we're like a burr into jelly pudding i was like that's so gross and weird i don't i can't what is something that you make food wise that some people are like "Mm, can you stop doing this Mm, do you want me to share with you mine while you think yeah yeah give me i always microwave my cereal really 30 always since i since i remember 30 seconds oh so it's like hot cereal no, I mean, it's 30, how in 30 seconds you can, I put... Oh, 30 seconds is a long time in a microwave. No, your microwave is very powerful. I put my cereal, I put my <laughs> I milk. Have a microwave. 30 seconds, microwave every every time. I have to. Wow, that is super freaking weird. Thank okay, you. that's okay. Respect, respect. All right, I'm thinking. <laughs> oh my God, I'm like, I don't think I can... I threw you off that. right now, yeah. That's a really bizarre one. I, I, what the hell could it be? Not, I never I mean, said I was a normal person. Uh, <laughs> I never said I was a normal person. So you don't, you what? can't think of anything? Something that's so weird that people say you need to stop doing that. I mean, it's like your thing, right? Like you do it since you're younger or something like food wise. It's like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I mean, I, the thing honestly came to mind, but I don't think people are offended by it. They're just more like, really? Uh, is Annie's mac and cheese. Like I eat it. I'm like so committed to that shit. It's amazing. Oh, I'll tell you one. When I feel like now it's less weird, but when I was younger, oh my God, I loved Gerber. Like loved. What's Gerber? Gerber baby food. Oh, okay. Like canned baby food or, you know, in a jar or whatever. I loved the peaches. I loved the bananas. And I was, you know, 15, 20 years old, 30 or 25. And I would eat jars of baby food and i loved it and people are like that's strange and i'd be like mm-hmm. you want to try it strange get over here and have some of this fruit cocktail and they'd be like oh my god that's delicious 
But just from the outside looking in, it looked weird. That was my second. It's my second weird, weird thing, I guess. There's these Portuguese brands. It's basically 60% flour that you feed babies. And I eat baby food. Wait, there's a hot Mexican, water. There's a Mexican version of that, too, that you it's like a bran or whatever, like bran flour. Mm-hmm. And then you mix it in with water. And then it's like this mushy, pasty thing, and it's delicious. Yeah. Or you can do it with milk. Same. Ooh, we have the same weird, uh, weird love for baby food. The name of the podcast is Turning Chickens uh, tr- Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those are two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that exceeded expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? I think for every for every chicken that I turned, I broke like 20 dishes. <laughs> I believe that's about the, the right ratio. And every time I break a dish, I learn something. So it makes the turning chicken part more exciting when it happens. Perfect. At the end of the podcast, I tell my guests to sell their fish. This is the Portuguese phrase. If someone tells you to sell your fish, it's to talk about yourself where people can find you, where people can find the aprons, where people can find your book, uh, what's in the future for you. Just sell your fish a little bit. So you can find us on headleyandbennett.com. That's where you can get also get a copy of the signed book. You can also follow along to meet Oliver the pig and my seven chickens and everyone else on Ellen Marie Bennett on Instagram, Headley and Bennett on Instagram and recently minted Headley and Bennett account on TikTok. We already have like 350,000 followers because the videos are so awesome and so fun and so educational that people are obsessed with it. So definitely go check it out. And for everyone listening out there, just know that even if you're a professional or a home cook, Headley and Bennett has amazing gear that makes you look and feel like a boss in the kitchen. So don't think for a second that this is just for professionals. Like we outfit hundreds of thousands of cooks at home. And if you're ever watching Food Network or Top Chef or have seen Mochi, uh, the new Michelle Obama show, what's it called? The Mochi. Yeah, the, um, yeah I know what the, the show, Mochi is. show. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Michelle is wearing Headley and Bennett in that show. And you just look for the little patch on the chest. And that is a Headley and Bennett apron. So I hope you join the apron squad, which is what we call everyone who wears Headley and Bennett. But have you met them, by the way, Michelle and Barack or no? I have not yet, but we've made a lot of aprons for them over the years, which has been really cool. I'm just going to plug this one here. I did. <laughs> it's, my, it's, my, it's my only trophy I have. I love hey, it. It's, that is pretty awesome. The plug. It's, you need it's to a goal. use that plug all the time. Yes, <laughs> I, I do it. I, I was at the embassy. I was very happy. I took a picture of them, met them, and then I send the picture to everyone back home. And the first thing my mom, she says when she gets the picture is, I was like, mom, did you see it? Did you see me and Barack Obama? She was like, gosh, David, yeah. you fat. I was like, thanks, mom. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what I was expecting from you. Anyway, EB, if I can call you, uh, this was a yeah. pleasure. People like you, people like Jenny, Jenny Brittenbauer that I had her here like three weeks ago. Yeah. It's all about why when I moved to the US, the whole you know American dream, it's true. You know, if you really, yeah. the Portuguese ambassador used to tell me like, if people tell you no 20 times, try the 21st time and someone's going to open the door. So you got to keep yep. going. And it's you are one of those cases. And Jenny is one of those cases. It's very inspirational. So thank you very much for coming. I know it's we were talking before. This is still early in L.A. Say hello to Oliver. I will. <laughs> you know, and, you know, if you ever go to Portugal, give me a call. I'll guide you where to go. And okay. that's it. I hope you have a great day. And thank you very much for coming. Thank you, David. 
Thank you very much, EB. I think I can call her that. We are basically friends nowadays for coming on a podcast. It was an absolutely pleasure. If you do want to buy an apron, don't forget, go to the website so you can buy one for you, buy one for the loved ones. You know, just do that. They are really, really amazing products. If you want to follow the Facebook page of the podcast, don't forget it's Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you want to follow us on Instagram, Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes. If you have any questions for me, suggestions, concerns, send me an email to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. If you want to support this podcast, don't forget you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash dmartins. I will see you next week. Wear an apron. Be happy. Adios.